0: This is Monday Morning QB, November 23, 2020. I'm Askia Mohammed. Today on the show, DC teachers are not ready to return to their classrooms. Facebook executives face the Senate. Can Joe Biden correct the Trump-Iran policy when Donald Trump leaves office? And as Nero fiddled while Rome burned, Trump plays golf as the pandemic rages. All that and more. Stay with us. Joe Biden won't only be facing a volatile domestic country when he takes office in January. He will also be tasked with correcting the American foreign policy Trump has so upended, particularly in the Middle East. And no geopolitical question looms larger than that of Iran. Has four years of Trump's bullying and breaking promises dashed chances for a return to diplomacy there? Reporter Chris Banker-Drowns
1: says it has not. The Trump White House announced new sanctions against Iranian leaders and organizations last week. That news followed reports suggesting Trump had asked for military strike options against Iran and had to be talked down from launching such an attack. While these moves might be nominally consistent with Trump's maximum pressure strategy against the Islamic Republic, they reveal a more banal political goal, to hamstring the incoming Democratic administration. The sanctions
2: regime is so large, you know, I think at this point Iran is the most sanctioned country in the world, that targeting these sort of individual entities are just a way of building more and more that Biden will have to undo.
1: That's the voice of Asal Rad, Senior Research Fellow at the National Iranian American Council. She says that while these new sanctions are meant to pressure Joe Biden, they aren't as destructive to the Iranian economy and population as U.S. sanctions typically are. The new sanctions apply to a collection of Iranian officials and a foundation controlled by the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. This is much more limited than the devastating banking sector sanctions announced just last month.
2: On the U.S. side, they'll say humanitarian aid or humanitarian goods are exempt. And on paper, this is true. But in reality, how it's being carried out on the ground, it's absolutely impacting their ability to actually import or have humanitarian goods. Because there's no bank that wants to risk U.S. sanctions violations. So what you get is a situation of overcompliance, and that has been the case now basically since the Trump administration has started putting all these sanctions into place, which has been happening over the last two years. So these additional sanctions seem to be less about how they're going to impact the economy in Iran and more about tying the hands of the Biden administration.
1: But these new sanctions might not even be effective at tying Biden's hands.
2: If Trump can implement the sanctions, Biden can undo them. It's just a matter of whether or not it's politically expedient to do so. And the way that I would measure it is he has a mandate to essentially, this is what he ran on was returning to normalcy. Now we can debate what returning to normalcy really means in the United States, but this is his platform. This is his idea is that, The Trump administration is somehow aberrant, and so we need to return the United States, especially on a global stage, to a position of leadership rather than the sort of tarnished isolationism that it has endured under the Trump administration. To do that, one of the first things that the Biden administration needs to do is address the issue of Iran because this is the sort of hot conflict. This is where everybody is worried that with one miscalculation, it can turn from this restrained, tense situation to an actual conflict. But I do think that Biden has every power to reel back essentially anything that Trump does.
1: So these new sanctions shouldn't be very threatening to the Iranian people or to the incoming Biden administration. But what about the threat of military strikes?
2: Trump ran on a platform that was against U.S. interventions in the Middle East. He calls the Iraq war a mistake. He hasn't started any new wars. And so, you know, you could think that he still does not want to actually strike Iran. On the other hand, the people around him, like Pompeo, have taken an opposite approach, right? It seems that They are moving towards conflict, and that really starts by the fact that they upended the idea of diplomacy.
1: A military strike, no matter how unlikely, would certainly be more painful than sanctions for the Iranian people and more politically difficult for the Biden administration to reverse.
2: In that case, I think there's two things we have to consider. It's what a Biden administration will do, and it's what Iran will do, right? A lot of times in these conversations, we're not taking into account that Iran has agency to act and react. And it's really a question of how Iran will react, that will set up uh, what a Biden administration can and cannot do.
1: And thus far, Iran has demonstrated a willingness to return to diplomacy, despite four years of escalation by the Trump White House. After Trump in 2018 pulled out of the landmark nuclear deal, Iran slowly began to push past uranium enrichment limits and other restrictions set in the deal. These moves were communicated well in advance, were made incrementally in response to U.S. escalations, and maybe most importantly, remain reversible.
2: Right. So the U.S. quits the deal in May of 2018. It's not until midway through 2019 that Iran starts, to your point, to make these calculated decisions to breach the limits within the deal. And it doesn't do so all at once. It does so step by step.
1: Iranian officials have made clear that they are prepared to return to the limits negotiated in the nuclear deal if the United States lift sanctions, as was stipulated under the deal.
2: So it would be compliance for compliance, and then any negotiations that the Biden administration wanted
1: would want to continue would go from that starting point. But Biden and Iran are operating on a short timetable. Iranian presidential elections will be held in June of next year, leaving about a five-month window for a return to diplomacy. That window could shut if hardliners in the Iranian government defeat the country's moderate faction, which has sought greater openness with the world and preferred diplomacy over military action.
2: There is you know, a hardliner faction in Iran that's opposed to the nuclear deal, it's opposed to uh, engaging with and negotiating with the United States. So that's why it's so important for a Biden administration to really go in with returning to the deal as a priority. How those elections play out will be contingent on what the Biden administration does. Because you can imagine in this debate, depending on where they actually stand, that would influence the debate. If a Biden administration comes in in January and returns into compliance, lifts the sanctions, Iran returns to compliance, and now we have a path back to diplomacy, that gives the moderate camp ammunition going into an election.
1: Election success for moderates in Iran would signal an opening for greater diplomacy on other matters, like human rights violations that have troubled Western governments. Asal Raad argues that diplomacy creates structures of accountability for Iran.
2: It can be held responsible in a different way than when it's completely isolated. And so in order to actually facilitate those negotiations, those discussions, where we're discussing human rights, then we have to do it in a way where we're engaging. If there's no engagement, then there's really no way of of making headway in that sense. But I'd also caution, you know, sort of against politicizing things like human rights, um, because if we're going to talk about human rights in Iran, we should be talking about it equally across the board, especially as the United States. If we are to be, you know, the, the arbiters of these discussions, then we have to do so even-handedly, or else that will always be used against us. Right. So we also have to be careful that every administration that comes in doesn't
1: politicize these points. So an opportunity exists not only to reverse Trump's misguided maximum pressure strategy and to return to the groundbreaking nuclear deal negotiated by Trump's predecessor, but also for Trump's successor to unlock diplomatic solutions to questions beyond Iran's nuclear program.
2: There is nothing that has happened yet. That can't be undone. There's nothing that can't be reversed on both sides. Biden can reverse the steps that Trump has taken, just as Iran can reverse the steps that they have taken uh, in terms of their nuclear program. So I think that we should remain hopefully optimistic and that a Biden administration will be able to
1: return us to a path of diplomacy. Asal Raad holds a PhD in Middle Eastern history and is Senior Research Fellow at the National Iranian American Council. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Banger (laughs) Drowns.
0: Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter chief executive Jack Dorsey returned to Capitol Hill on Tuesday for grilling from the Senate Judiciary Committee about their role in political discourse. It was their second appearance in less than three weeks. Republicans took issue with what they see as an effort to silence conservatives. Democrats revisited their concerns about the proliferation of misinformation and hate speech on the platforms and asked the CEOs to do more to stop it. In their own defense, Dorsey and Zuckerberg spoke of safeguards they have put in place to stop the spread of falsehoods on their platforms. But even as safeguards have been adopted, do they go far enough? Sue Goodwin reports.
3: This is hardly the first time Facebook has come under scrutiny for its role in a presidential election. Remember 2016? That's the one where a Russia-linked operation used Facebook to discourage black voters as part of its campaign to influence the vote toward Trump. The pushback from the civil rights community was fierce. LaShawn Warren is Executive Vice President of Government Affairs at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, and she says the pressure paid off.
4: Facebook has made significant progress. And when we look at what happened in 2016, where African-Americans were targeted for disinformation and misinformation, where intimidation happened on their platform, when we look at that compared to what happened this cycle, We see a market difference in terms of the amount of hate speech, the targeting with respect to ads. So content moderation and enforcement has been stepped up significantly. And one of the things that they did at our urging was they created a neutral platform for people to get more information about voting, um, how you do it, how you register, where you vote.
3: Another action taken at the urging of the civil rights community is that Facebook agreed to an independent civil rights audit. A team led by former American Civil Liberties Union executive Laura Murphy spent two years examining the platform's practices and internal policies from hiring to algorithmic bias and the impact of these policies on underrepresented communities and communities of color.
4: I think the civil rights audit probably was one of the single most effective tools to get them to really examine the impact of their decisions. Their decisions have real consequences on people's lives and I think the the civil rights audit helped them to see that in real ways.
3: In July of this year the civil rights auditors released their final report and it was a mixed bag. There were some things Facebook did well such as expanding their voter suppression policies and creating a robust census interference policy. At the same time, and to quote the report, we have also watched the company make painful decisions over the last nine months with real-world consequences that are serious setbacks for civil rights, unquote. And one of those decisions was to treat content from politicians differently than that from others. So while a politician's content could be labeled as misleading, it stays up.
4: So with their other content, if it's this information and this information, they would take it down. And there was an exception for political officials where they would leave it up without a label. And then more recently, they decided to put a label on it, basically suggesting that the information could not be verified that was a step in the in the right direction, but the, the information remained on the platform. And one of the things that we want to, wanted them to do is to take the information down, to treat it very much like they have done with COVID-19 misinformation. If there is information out there that is incorrect, they will take the information down.
3: But Facebook CEO Zuckerberg has long said he believes the company should not police what politicians say on its platform. Facebook has taken the position that posts from the president and other politicians are, by definition, newsworthy and deserve to be seen. It was this exemption that let some of Trump's most misleading and destructive posts stay up, including the infamous, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. Twitter hid the same post for glorifying violence. In a statement released the same day the final civil rights audit was released, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, along with other leading civil rights organizations, recognized the value of the audit for drawing attention to this and other issues, but noted there is still much work to be done, and that includes closing the loopholes for politicians. Also on the list of what Facebook could do better is to build out its internal civil rights infrastructure. In other words, as Facebook monitors posts for hateful and misleading content, they need to put people in the room who have the experiential knowledge to know what they are looking at and the expertise to know how to respond.
4: So a lot of times in terms of being able to identify what voter suppression looks like online there was there was difficulty doing that because there was no expertise within the actual company to kind of help guide their their products and to assess some of the the um online activity that they were seeing.
3: Take, for example, a photograph of an ice agent outside a polling place.
4: If you have an ice agent outside predominantly Latino polling place. It totally meant to uh, intimidate people. For someone who is from communities of color, they understand what that means when there are ICE agents that are outside a polling place. For other folks who like have no experience with ICE and sort of how they operate and raids and all of that, that picture could seem harmless. And, and that is one of the reasons why having some level of expertise within the company to help them identify what intimidation looks like on the platform is critically important and it's in the nuance.
3: As LaShawn Warren notes, gone are the days of requiring black voters to count the number of bubbles on soap or pass a literacy test before they could vote. All the more reason to have a keen eye, especially as Facebook has announced plans to rely on artificial intelligence AI, to boost its efforts to evaluate whether posts should be labeled or removed.
4: Part of this also is teaching the engineers what to look for, and then the engineers actually programming AI to help them identify particular content pieces that could be potentially problematic. So it's a machine learning piece
3: as well. Since the election, millions have migrated to alternative social media sites, like Parler. Parler was founded as a conservative social network, and it's seen a surge after Trump's tweets were slapped with misinformation warning labels by Twitter. Parler has fewer rules than Twitter and Facebook over what it allows on its network. The company doesn't have third-party fact-checkers and doesn't label misinformation. And LaShawn Warren says, That's cause for concern.
4: Yes, I think we all have to be concerned, obviously, about any platform that allows targeting to happen and allows people to put things that will incite violence and incite hate. That is not the kind of society that we we want to be. I am not an expert in, in this particular area. We believe in the First Amendment for sure, but to the extent that you have these alternatives that are put forward that can cause harm to people, that that's sort of the the trigger and the the point that we that we are really most concerned about.
3: Lashawn Warren reminds us that people can lose their lives based on content that spreads on platforms. And while Facebook may be taking some steps to confront that reality, the fight is far from over.
4: You know, the the reality is, if you have, if you develop this, plat, you know, these new technologies, you have a responsibility beyond just the creation. You have to continue to guard the technology in ways that um, ensures that it is not damaging and detrimental to our society or to the to
3: the users for sure. LaShawn Warren is Executive Vice President of Government Affairs at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin.
0: One week ago, it seemed like DC public schools were poised to reopen the teachers and students back in the classrooms. But then the process hit a bump in the road. The Washington Teachers Union has rebuffed the tentative agreement. Union President Liz Davis explains.
5: Well, it's not all falling apart. Even though the mayor and chancellor make it sound like, I think her, her, her term is the WTU keeps moving the goalposts. Uh, well, for me, for the WTU, it appears that DCPS keeps hiding the goalposts. We can't even find it. Um, and the, the bottom line is it is a very good memorandum of agreement. We worked on it for months. Um, WTU drafted it. Uh, we made a lot of concessions, a lot of them, which started out as a 14-page document. We ended up with a four-page document. So you can tell we made some concessions. PCTS made some as well. And we were close to a very good settlement until um, we reached the point of the third and fourth term. The third and fourth terms will occur after two major holidays where families will be gathering indoors. Cases assuredly in COVID will be spiking. They already are. We don't know yet what is the positivity rate for D.C. I haven't heard a number. In New York, it's 3.2 or something. In, D- in D.C., we don't know. what is the posit- What would the positivity rate need to be in order for any facility for public spaces to have to shut down. We don't know what that is. So in the absence of information, people are afraid. Our teachers who work in these 115 schools and know the condition of their buildings before they left for the pandemic to close, they know the condition of their buildings, especially those teachers who work in schools that have not been modernized. These buildings are 65, 70, 80 years old. So they know also that to get anything repaired in their building, if you put in a work order, you might get it done the next year. They know the procurement system is slow. So and And they also know that in many of their buildings, they do not have ventilation in the classroom. There is no central air. And some of them that have central air, it does not function properly, like the school without walls where the principal questioned it. Uh, because he's been asking for the HVAC system in his building to be repaired for years. They've now done it. And when he conducted his walkthrough using that school readiness checklist that WTU created, he questioned the MIRB uh, filters whether or not they were appropriate, uh, whether or not what had been done to the HVAC, what standards were used to do that. They got upset and decided they didn't answer the question. And some of the questions they didn't even know how to respond to. And, and he, and it just made him very nervous about bringing teachers and students back into that building, knowing what he knew. And he's been a principal for 10 years. He ought to know what's going on in his building. But what, because he's at will still, all of the principals are, they are afraid to say, my school is not ready, like he did. And when he said it, they terminated him. Now, they went back and later and said it was because he transferred a child a year ago to uh, a, a child of a teacher into the building who, you know, whatever. But the point is, um, it, it, you know, fear paralyzes people. It makes them afraid to speak truth. Especially if they have bosses who may not understand, uh, who may not be apathetic. So what we know is that our teachers don't believe it's safe. We polled our members and of more than 1,100 responses so far, and they're still coming in, Less than 10% believe the care classrooms are safe. Those classrooms open this week. There's there's an even bigger problem. Only 30% of our members feel they have a good understanding of what the care classroom model is. And if you want the support of of, of individuals working in these schools, you know, DCPS need to do a much better job of engaging members of all of the unions that represent school workers.
0: Now, some people say that there are some campuses that are safe. Uh, can Is there any way that those places which are safe can return and, and while and, you still and, and work um, on the others?
5: Yes, absolutely. And that is exactly what is happening. Uh, the care classrooms, and even though 29 schools were cited as locations for those care classrooms, the plan for how that would be rolled out has changed. Initially, it was thirty, it was thirty-five schools, and it would be one care classroom in each of those thirty-five schools. Well, you know, and, and, and here we were, we were prepared to sign off on the MOA if DC public schools committed to allowing the unions to bargain around safety, health, and staffing issues for the third and fourth terms. The third and fourth terms are going to be at high at peak season for COVID after the holiday. And for D C P S to suggest to all of the unions that they're not they don't have to negotiate around the or bargain on the guidelines and conditions under which workers return, that is precisely what why Perv cited them for not bargaining in good faith around safety and health issues.
0: It sounds like a bunch of um, Republican talking points which are being used to perhaps dismantle the union or divide the various unions that represent the workers in the various fields that are important in the schools.
5: You, and you know what? You have hit the nail on the head because this document that was sent out yesterday to all of the labor leaders clearly, clearly says that to divide and conquer the unions. Every principal of the union, The Teamsters Union, the Paris Union, Security Nurses, WTU, all raise the same issue. No clear guidelines, lack of communication, no transparency, lack of engagement of the unions that are representing school workers. And see, that—that that is just, at this time, in a collective bargaining city, where everyone running for office, go before the Labor Council which represents the entire labor community for their endorsement. So you would think that this would be a union-friendly town, but what you've just said is exactly what seems to be being confirmed each day. The fact that this document is going out after one firm ruling saying you did not negotiate a bargain in good faith, another document going straight out to all members of all six unions, and they have had no say in it, even though their workers are the ones who will implement this whole plan
0: short of some miracle and the coronavirus just disappearing do you see a, a return soon to school in-person learning
5: um yeah yes and you know um in some schools and what i'd like for us to do is because we are not sure if uh, all of those schools that have opened uh for care classrooms and you don't you know that we opened 12 schools i think these were schools CT or something, I'm not sure. But um, we need to assess which ones are doing well, what are they doing that's great. Um, We haven't gotten that. And it could be that the school system has done something like that and we just don't know about it, which goes back to my point about the lack of clear communication or any communications at all. Um, Getting back to in-person teaching, uh, I'm not going to ever stop saying how critical it is for us to do that. But when we do it, I want us to do it based on what is happening science and health-wise. Not to be pressured by anything to reopen, just to say, oh, we have kids that are having, experiencing academic drop-off, we know that. But we want them, those kids to be safe when they experience in-person teaching. We know that these kids need to have, engaged with their peers. They need social social interaction with each other. And they, they need to be able to engage with their teachers. But I'm not going to deviate from the point that it needs to be done in a way that's not going to put them in at at risk. This virus is not prejudice; it doesn't care about you know the 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 pressure of the need to get kids, you know. And of course, I've heard various reasons why we need to get kids. We have kids who who live in homeless shelters, over six thousand of them, and I know that that is extremely challenging. Uh, But we want those kids. Uh, we don't want to exacerbate a problem by bringing them into situations that's going, that's going to be unsafe. And as DCPS has moved forward with today, with yesterday opening the CARES classroom, our members were increasingly frustrated and, and members of the other unions as evidenced by our meeting this morning, frustrated by a lack of transparency and engagement in the reopening of these classrooms. DCPS has not shared with us or the broader community a full list of of uh, which schools uh, have been completed satisfactorily, are ready, pass inspection, which ones did not pass, why they did not pass, and what are the next steps for getting them ready. So we're not obstructionists. Our union is solution driven. And we're also about social justice. And of course, at this time, we're looking after the, the health and safety of all workers that set foot inside of a building, visitors, students, we believe the first priority has got to be safety for all workers, and the only way to build safety is through communication and trust. And trust has fallen short on these measures, so we're going to continue um, working with DC Public Schools, but we have we still have concerns about um, the plans to return elementary students to in-person learning, and with the staffing for their care classrooms. A lot of the information details of how that's going, how that has, is working, it's not uh, is not clear.
0: Liz Davis, president of the Washington Teachers Union, thank you for shedding so much light with us. For thank us. You. I see you for inviting me. Now that most everyone sees Donald J. Trump as a lame duck president, the critics have already exhausted the list of words they can use to insult him. At the same time, Trump continues to provide ammunition for his own abuse. This past weekend, during the Group of 20 Summit of Industrial Nations concerning the global coronavirus pandemic, Trump delivered brief remarks on Saturday, then took to the golf course. Nero fiddled while Rome burned. Trump golfs as U.S. COVID deaths exceeded a quarter of a million people. It is on the golf course where Robin Gavan, Washington Post critic at large, found Trump recently sort of aggressively doing nothing.
6: Well, I think he's making quite a show of uh, doing nothing. Um, you know, most presidents, um, part of sort of the, the role is uh, presenting uh, a public face of order and control and uh, reassurance. And this president um, has really been um, on on in his own private sort of lockdown since the election. And so the most that we've really seen him has been on the golf course or through his his tweets. And I think that is, you know, it's a stereotype, uh, certainly this idea of, um, the well-fed guy on the golf course, but he really seems to have settled into that. Well, you know, the thing that I find it you is know, strange is that when you see these photographs of him on the golf course, particularly the ones when he's, you know, riding around, driving around in the golf cart, he does not look like a man who's delighted to be there. Um, He has the same sort of grim scowl on his face as he might have, you you know, if he were um, engaged in something a lot less um, entertaining. And so it doesn't seem like he's there for the pleasure of it, but it seems like he's there uh, because it's a convenient place. It's an easy place. Um, to, uh, to avoid um, the reality of his responsibilities.
0: Could this possibly be a robo-dope, a, robo a fake-out by uh, Donald J. Trump to get people paying attention to his uh, antics on the golf course while he's plotting destruction and mayhem, wars, sanctions on Iran, uh, this sort of thing? Could he be trying to distract us? With a rope dope.
6: Well, I think in many ways it's just um, you know it's it's easier to um, simply be this um, kind of nearly invisible, this spectral kind of present, and just have all of your decisions, your thoughts, your feelings, your hopes and dreams transmitted via Twitter. Um, you know, he has not put himself in a position in which he's actually speaking in front of wise people who are then able to question him. Um, so, I mean, I do think that, you know, the golf course is a bit of a, it's a, it's a refuge, it's a safe space. And it's a place where um, he clearly feels confident that um, he will not be questioned.
0: In your article critiquing President Trump on the golf course, you refer to him as being white and wealthy uh, on more than one occasion. Uh, do you have a beef with rich white guys?
6: I do not. I do, however, have deep concerns um, about um, the role that white male privilege plays and the and the way that it appears to be playing out in this situation. Um, there is an incredible amount of deference um, that um, has been afforded this president, and and a lot of that um, is so far beyond the scope of what one might say is oh well it's just presidential deference. Um, this is a complete denial of reality, and that is uh, a far cry from um, what is. Sort of normal presidential deference.
0: He seems to be a shameless person. And I wonder, is there anything that can make him realize the disgrace that is being heaped on him or that he's brought upon this country? Can he be disgraced?
6: Well, you know, I think that his measure of what is disgrace is is different. Um, from, you know, what yours might be. Um, I I think it's fair to say that um, he sees loss as a tremendous disgrace and, um, you know, and and shameful and will do whatever is necessary to avoid that.
0: But he has lost and that can't be avoided. And really, once he's out of office, I think the even as they, I suspect, are destroying documents throughout the government now to cover up his, as you described, his malfeasance, there's still going to be a ton of stuff, uh, stinky stuff, as I describe it, that's gonna be found about him and revealed.
6: Well, I have no intel on what may or may not be destroyed, um, I do think that we can look at obviously the numbers from the election, and it's it's evident that he has lost. And um, you know, I you can um, you can accept that and move on, or you can uh, sort of deal with an inescapable fact and then try and um, spin it. To the most in the most favorable light that you can, or you can try to um, sully the victory. And um, there's, you know, been reporting in the Washington Post that um, there is uh, a goal to um, w- recognizing the inability to claim victory. That the next best thing is to sully the other person's victory.
0: I've uh, observed, and in in reading about this president, people talk about his pouty face and so many other anomalies that just are almost like caricatures of a caricature. You rose to our attention and our appreciation as a fashion writer. Do you have any fashion critique about uh, this? Um President
6: <laughs> well, I mean I, he has um, has used the the sort of poorly fitting suit as I think, a way of um, uh, distinguishing himself from um, the establishment and the idea that um, part of being Sort of professional and pulled together, and um, um, uh, and, and 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 being uh, uh, sort of proper and dealing in propriety is to be well dressed. You know, not expensively dressed, but just well dressed with dressed with care and gr- dressed with a certain uh, sense of consciousness. And I, I think he has he doesn't do that. Um, you know, his suits don't fit well, his ties are too long, his pants are too baggy. Um, there's just sort of a lack of attention to detail. And, um, I mean, I do think that's something that, um, you know, has carried over um, with this White House. It works in broad strokes. Um, everything is, you know, pounded with a sledgehammer. It's, you know, there's, there's little precision.
0: Funny you should mention that because I, when you, as you started describing that, I, I realized that just about every time I s- see him walk out or or take the stage, he's always pulling his coat together, although he doesn't button it. Uh, I mean, is that a? I mean, it's, it's it's almost as if that's a a Rodney Dangerfield habit. Well,
6: I, you know, to me, I, I think of two things. One, you know, sort of the refusal to button the jacket. Um, is just a refusal to um, to play along with decorum. You know, there's no particular rule that says, you know, a man buttons his jacket when he's standing other than it's tradition, it's decorum, it's, um, you know, it's sort of just what is done. Um, and the other thing I, I think is also that, um, you know, the jackets are big. And some of that, I believe, is just sort of a camouflaging device. Um, you know, this belief that you know, the bigger the jacket, the less that people will see of the body underneath it.
0: Covering up that belly.
6: Well, I think everyone sometimes wants a little bit of camouflage, but yeah.
0: Robin Gavon, critic at large at the Washington Post. Thanks, Thanks for talking with us.
6: Thank you so much.
0: Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Nevada are now all poised to certify their state's election returns, making it mathematically impossible for Trump to win the Electoral College and be reelected. Meanwhile, the Trump presidency spirals toward an ugly destruction. He refuses to concede. He set up every imaginable obstacle to a smooth transition of power to the incoming Biden administration. But Howard University political science professor Clarence Lussein. As an idea on how to get rid of Trump, impeach him again.
7: Uh, Realistically, you know, his uh, efforts to sabotage the election and to use uh, and pass uh, false information uh, should be impeachable. You know, Trump is creating a terrible president for the country, uh, and then when you add in the racial dimension of it, uh, I think there is absolutely a basis for uh, them to call for his impeachment.
0: The number of black members of Congress, is that an unprecedented high? Is that a, a sign of progress?
7: Right. So while it has been beneficial in the sense uh, in terms of having black members in Congress in that issues get raised, uh, that's not enough what we need more than anything is that the kind of public policy that Congress can pass that will benefit African Americans uh, needs to happen. And to the degree that the Congressional Caucus may or may not fight for those issues, that should be the basis on which we gauge uh, their effectiveness. So, for example, whether we're talking about voting rights, black workers' rights, environmental justice, uh, healthcare relative to COVID 19 and its uh, disproportionate impact on African Americans. You know, is the caucus out in front on those issues? Is it putting pressure on other members of Congress? Is the caucus out in the communities educating people about these issues? And specifically, will the caucus put pressure on the new administration uh, coming in? So I think those should be the metrics to look at uh, whether it's been ultimately beneficial to have uh, 50 plus members uh, in the House of Representatives and uh, two to three uh, members in the US Senate. What I think we need to hold uh, the administration accountable to the new administration, uh, two things. One is that Biden won because significantly the African-American community and other communities of mobilized and pushed back to make sure that uh Biden was elected. And then there's also Biden's uh lift f lift every voice plan which uh is actually has a number of uh excellent proposals in it to cover a lot of the issues I mentioned, uh holding Biden accountable to uh to those uh policies and not uh surrendering because he wants a bipartisan Uh, approach that means compromise. Uh, It would be fine if they're Republicans who sign on, but they should not be able to weaken an agenda uh, that people put Biden in uh, power Biden and Harris in power to fight for.
0: There are suggestions that he might even want to pardon him or not prosecute him for the crimes that he's committed.
7: Donald Trump should be held accountable. He should not be seen as above the law uh, more than anybody else in this country. And I think once the Biden administration comes in and they have access to what was the real behavior of the administration and all of the documents they attempted to hide or destroy, uh, they can make that determination. But even if Biden wants to give Trump a break uh, for some kind of mythical uh, keep the country together and let bygones be bygones, uh, Congress can also do something about it. And so they can also have hearings and do investigations and give materials they were not able to get during the impeachment trial. So there are ways in which uh, Donald Trump should not be able to uh, get away with what uh, even in the Mueller report uh, hinted at vast uh, law breaking uh, in terms of cover up and corruption. Well, I think I think they're going to try to destroy and get rid of evidence. Uh, this is what you know that kind of corruption does. But I think there are a lot of people who have witnessed and have uh, documentation, documentation and materials who have not been able to say anything out of fear of losing their jobs and retaliation. Who are going to come forward once Biden is in and so i think we're going to uncover uh, some of the worst corruption and uh criminality that probably exist existed in anybody in the presidency
0: howard university is the alma mater of vice president-elect kamala harris and is where dr clarence lussein is a professor of political science all of this trump bashing has got me wanting to wade in with my two cents worth so here are my thoughts on how the black vote once again has rid the White House of a white political ogre. Although this election season, this November, this year is like no other, I can truly say I feel like I've been here before. First, it was 1976, after the nightmare that had been the presidency of Richard Nixon and his second vice president turned President Gerald Ford... Then, thanks to a decisive role by black voters, Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter was elected, ending what seemed like a nightmare. I was working at the Chicago Daily Defender at the time, and my brilliant boss, Louis Martin, he told me, why don't you go down to Washington? Black voters just put Carter in the White House, and it's going to be a new day for us in Washington. Carter managed to endure one turbulent term. In 1992, also thanks to unprecedented Black voter support, Bill Clinton, another former Southern governor, ended another even more conservative White House period of Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush policies, which had given us the welfare queen rhetoric and Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. After the next 16 years, Black voters again closed another dismal chapter. This time that of George W. (for worst in history) Bush, who had given us endless wars and even more disastrous tax cuts for the rich, when they pushed Barack Obama over the top and the nation sighed, Yes, we can! Now, twelve years later, after four years of reversals and presidential humiliations which literally exhausted the book of ugly adjectives and descriptors for him, black voters have decisively closed the door on the Donald Trump regime. And while each time their role in electing Democratic chief executives has been verbally acknowledged, black folks have watched each successive Republican president turn the clock back further than before. And it seems like the black agenda is even further from being fulfilled. Former Vice President Joe Biden is now poised to take over when the Donald and his not-ready-for-prime-time cast of characters finally exit the stage, that is. And Biden seems to want to govern by winning over those 73 million white voters who voted for Trump, the loser. Biden's even suggesting he might be merciful about prosecuting the Donald's many crimes while he was in office so the nation can heal. That's pure lunacy. Biden would have better results if he brayed at the moon. Sadly, white Democrats, who have relied on black votes to put them in the White House in every election, going back to John F. Kennedy, just don't seem to get it. But the GOP is clear. Republicans, now led by Trump, even in defeat, are waging war on black people and their Democratic Party surrogates like their fellow Americans are a foreign enemy, while the feckless Democrats are singing Kumbaya, led by Joe Biden, and dancing the Shingaling, led by Kamala Harris and her sorority sisters. But it appears to me that the victors are approaching this political season like it's a Crochet class, not a battle for the future of the country. It's shocking. Mumia Abu Jamal has been imprisoned for longer than Colin Kaepernick has been alive. Not longer than the champion NFL quarterback has been protesting police brutality, insisting that Black Lives Matter. No, longer than he has been alive on this earth. Now in Kaepernick, Mumia Abu-Jamal has found a new advocate for his release, though. Young Colin Kaepernick says, without reservation, free, free. Mumia.
8: When I was invited to speak on behalf of Mumia, one of the first things that came to mind was how long he's been in prison. How many years of his life have been stolen away from him, his community, and his loved ones. He has been incarcerated for 38 years. Mumia has been in prison longer than I have been alive. When I first spoke with Mumia on the phone, I did very little talking. I just listened. Hearing him speak was a reminder of why we must continue to fight. Earlier this year, the United Nations Human Rights Office of the High Commissioner issued a statement noting that prolonged solitary confinement, the precise type often used in the United States, amounts to psychological torture, Mumia Abu-Jamal has spent roughly 30 out of his 38 years in solitary confinement. In his book, Live from Death Row, Mumia wrote that prison is a second-by-second assault on the soul, a day-to-day degradation of the self, an oppressive steel and brick umbrella that transforms seconds into hours and hours into days. He has had to endure this second-by-second assault On his soul for 38 years. He had no record before he was arrested and framed for the death of a Philadelphia police officer. Since 1981 Mumia has maintained his innocence. His story has not changed. Mumia was shot, brutalized, arrested, and chained to a hospital bed. The first police officer assigned to him wrote in a report that The Negro male made no comment, as cited in Philly Mag. Yet 64 days into the investigation, another officer testified that Mumia had confessed to the killing. Mumia's story has not changed. But we are talking about the same Philadelphia Police Department whose behavior shocks the conscious, according to a 1979 DOJ report. Behaviors like shooting nonviolent suspects, abusing handcuffed prisoners, and tampering with evidence. It should therefore come as little surprise that, according to Dr. Johanna Fernandez, over one third of the 35 officers involved in Mumia's case were subsequently convicted of rank corruption, extortion, and tampering with evidence to obtain convictions in unrelated cases. This is the same Philadelphia Police Department where officers ran racial profiling sweeps, like Operation Cold Turkey in March 1985, targeting black and brown folks, and bombed the Move House in May of that year, killing 11 people, including five children, and destroying 61 homes. The same Philadelphia Police Department whose officers, eight days before the 2020 presidential election, shot Walter Wallace Jr. dead in the streets, in front of his crying mother. The Philadelphia Fraternal Order of Police has unrelentingly campaigned for Mumia's execution. During their August 1999 national meeting, a spokesperson for the organization stated that they will not rest until Abu Jamal burns in hell. The former Philadelphia president of the Fraternal Order of Police, Richard Costello, went as far as to say that if you disagree with their views of Mumia, you can join him in the electric chair and that they will make it an electric couch. The trial judge on Mumia's case in 1981, Albert Sabo, was a former member of the Fraternal Order of Police. Court reporter Terry Moore Carter overheard Judge Sabo telling a colleague, I'm going to help them fry the nigger. Found in December 2018 in an inaccessible storage room of the DA's office, six boxes of documents from Mumia's case reveal previously undisclosed and highly significant evidence showing that Mumia's trial was tainted by a failure to disclose material evidence in violation of the United States and Pennsylvania constitutions. In November 2019, the Fraternal Order of Police filed a King's Bench petition asking the court to allow the State Attorney General, not the Philadelphia DA's office, to handle the upcoming appeals. As the FOP President John McNesby said, just last year, Mumia should remain in prison for the rest of his life and a King's Bench Order provides the legal angle for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania to uphold Judge Sabo's original wish, which was for Mumia ultimately to die in prison. Today we are living through a moment where it's acceptable to paint End Racism Now in front of the Philadelphia Police Department's 26th District Headquarters. And yet a political prisoner who has since the age of 14 dedicated his life to fighting against racism, continues to be caged and lives his life on a slow death row. We're in the midst of a movement that says Black Lives Matter, and if that's truly the case, then it means that Mumia's life and legacy must matter, and the causes that he sacrificed his life and freedom for must matter as well. Through all of the torture Mumia has suffered over the past 38 years, His principles have never wavered. These principles have manifested themselves in his writing countless books while incarcerated, in his successful radio show, in the time and energy he has poured into his mentorship of younger incarcerated folks, and the continued concern with the people suffering outside of the walls. Even while living in the hells of the prison system, Mumia still fights for our human rights. We must continue to fight for him and his human rights. Mumia is 66 years old. He is a grandfather. He is an elder with ailments. He is a human being that deserves to be free. Free Mumia.
0: And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin, I'm Askiya Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFW Please stay safe. Keep your social distance. Mask up. And thank you for listening to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York.